0: This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. From music to maps, money and modernity, this is where ideas come to life.
1: Well, welcome to another edition of Southeast Asia Crossroads. Uh, I'm your host, Eric Jones, and with me in uh, virtual studio is uh, uh, Jim Wilson from the from the center. How you doing, Jim?
2: I'm doing fine, thanks, Eric.
1: He said a long day in the salt mines of uh, Microsoft Teams virtual lecturing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Lecturing online, yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's uh, a little different. Yeah?
1: Well, also, the um, vir- virtual studio is, 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 a, is a special guest uh, um, that we're going to talk to today. Do you want to introduce him, Jim?
2: Yes. Um, today we have uh, Dr. Jacob Schell, who is an associate professor of geography and urban studies at Temple University in Philadelphia. He received his Ph.D. in geography from Syracuse University. Dr. Schell arrived at his interest in Burma or Myanmar through the topic of transportation, in particular, transportation on animal back. His first book, Transportation and Revolt, Pigeons, Mules, Canals, and the Vanishing Geographies of Subversive Mobility, was published by MIT Press in 2015. Dr. Schell initially set out to write a book about elephants as a means of transportation in 2012, a research framing which uh, directed his attention to the teak forests of central Burma, as well as to the forests of Kachin State and to Northeast India. His book about this topic, Giants of the Monsoon Forest Living and Working with Elephants, was published by W.W. W. Norton in 2019. Dr. Shao also draws maps, so he has a cartographic background as well. So, um, with that, um, I think um, I, we can start off with a uh, maybe giving a little background as to how you got into this topic that you discussed earlier today.
0: Sure. And uh, thank you for having me uh, on the podcast. Um, I think it'll be fun to uh, re-explore the same themes in, in this very different setting than the kind of more formal talk I gave before. Yeah. Um, yeah well, I had written this um, sort of dissertation and then eventually my first book and it was um, mostly focused on uh, forms of transportation that allow the user of the transportation to move about in secret. And that uh, that work, which ultimately became my book, Transportation and Revolts, uh, which was published by MIT Press in 2015, um, it had a lot of emphasis on various transport animals like horses and mules, sled dogs, camels. And there was this section about elephants and in particular um, the ways in which the rebels during the Sepoy mutiny in India in 1857 through 59 um had made uh, this very sort of smart tactical use of their elephants to escape their uh, British pursuers in the sort of um, uh, peak moments of the uh, of the rebellion um, that had happened. it was It was a very sort of historical topic, and that entire book is very historical emphasis. But it left me really interested that that sort of uh, leg of that previous research left me incredibly interested about, this general topic about elephants as a means of transportation, elephants as a means of crossing rivers, elephants as a means of escape during uh, political crises. Um, And uh, around uh, this point, I was moving to Philadelphia for my professor job at Temple. And it it sort of came together that I I realized that a tremendous amount of the kind of remaining elephant-based work and elephant-based transportation geography that exists in the world is primarily in Burma or Myanmar. Um, and I think through some some books I crossed paths with, like the books by um, Berto Lintner or Shelby Tucker, who have written a lot about the political crises that are associated with um, Kachin State, um, in, in particular during the 1980s, uh, which is when both of them wrote a lot of their key books on that topic, um, I realized that Kachin State was really like the number one place where uh, a lot of these things were going on, um, at least as late as the 1980s. But... What I was sort of uh, very fortuitous um, to sort of happen upon is that there's a pretty substantial Burmese refugee population in the city of Philadelphia, uh, most of whom are not actually Kachin. A great many of them are actually rather uh, Karen people, who are another kind of elephant-associated people, but but, um, not as much so in the 21st century as the Kachin. Um, Eventually, I did touch base with a local uh, Kachin person And I just met with her very frequently, and she had a lot of sort of interesting and useful connections back in Michina, which is the capital city of Kachin State. Um, And this sort of got me started in that kind of um, area of emphasis of the work, looking at uh, Kachin State and Kachin people um, and some other groups in Kachin State, like Comte people, and uh, the importance of – domesticated elephants and elephant-based transportation and elephants as a means of crossing forests and sometimes moving about in secret under certain political circumstances. Um, That's what, that's what sort of got that aspect of the research started.
1: Yeah. And who would have thought community-based research would, you know, get you to Kachin State or that's uh, that's, uh, that's, that's great.
0: Yeah. I mean, it was very fortuitous. I think the way I did this, I mean, if if like, you know, first year grad students are listening, they might want to make note of how, Kind of a helter skelter this was, but it was. I think at first what I did was something like, I I just sort of googled around to figure out who the kind of highest profile, uh, Kachin Baptist ministers in the United States were, because I knew it was a very like heavily Christian community. Um, not entirely Baptist, by the way. A great many uh, are Catholic or other denominations of Christianity. Um, and then I wrote to someone who wasn't from Philadelphia who happened to write back, and I think was sort of delighted by my email. And he, this particular minister. I think he's in Maryland. It's many years ago now, so I don't entirely remember. But he said, "I know exactly who you need to speak to. You need to speak to this this, um, uh, this woman who lives in your city of Philadelphia, and she'll be able to help you." Um, and so that was the uh, that was like that was the initial strategy. But th- that was years ago. Though many other subsequent things um, yeah. um happened following that point. Um, I, often f- yeah. I
2: often find that uh, a lot of it is just serendipity you know, making yeah, yeah. connections and, and things just sort of evolve or develop um, from that They just keep going. You
1: know? But you must have, you must have also sensed, like, it, it doesn't hurt to have a topic that is like inherently kind of sexy and like um, people yeah. want to hear about, elef- right? I mean, like more than maybe barges, like yeah, people are like, oh, elephants, like I'm listening. Is that, does that happen? I had students say yeah, this, say that, this that, to that, me, like, oh, I want to listen to the elephant thing. <laughs>
0: Yeah, Rather no, that, that's very
2: transportation that's geography. <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
0: Up. I mean, that that that's very insightful because that that is exactly what it felt like um, around twenty eleven, twelve, thirteen, where um, I had this book that was very focused on, I said, yeah, to some extent, on animal-based transportations, but also canal networks and rail networks, and I was noticing that it was a little hard to get people fired up as fired up about those topics as I was. Um, <laughs> And that the sort of the farther I went in this kind of animal direction, uh, it became a little bit easier. And I think with elephants, it's um, it, it definitely you know it, they're they're a very you know they're charismatic. They they draw a tremendous yeah. amount of uh, attention to themselves and sort of capture the imagination. And I don't think that's just, that's just for sort of like shallow reasons. I, I suspect that there's something going on with a lot of human groups um, where uh, there's a kind of uh, there's an innate tendency to perceive certain animals as being really charismatic and to want to learn more about them and, and, and this kind of thing. Um, so possibly if I, if I had chosen something like, uh, the leeches of kitchen state, and there are a lot of leeches in kitchen state, <laughs> yeah. it's possible I wouldn't uh, have yeah. had quite as much success. Um, although it, you did attention.
2: have, a, I imagine you did have some experience with leeches, didn't
0: you? Or? Yes. Oh yes. Yeah. So you, you, you've been a careful reader. Yes. Well, actually, yeah. uh, leeches are really important for understanding why, elephants have kind of endured as this important means of transportation in that region. Um, the severity, the severity of, uh, of, of uh, you know, sort of aggressive leeches, especially in the Hukong Valley or Pat Kai mountain kind of area, uh, makes it pretty dangerous at times to even walk across certain areas uh, on foot. Whereas if you're up on top of an elephant's back, you really have something more like a fighting chance to like mitigate the amount of leeches that land on you. So, so actually the leeches are important, uh, too. And, and, it is um, is is another factor for understanding why this sort of surprising transportation geography that's happening on the backs of elephants is enduring into the twenty first century.
1: Um, so the um, okay, um, oh go ahead. Oh go ahead. Eric. Well, I was going to say yeah. the the historian to me is dying to like to sort of some context, and you you give in your book but maybe for the listeners. Um, so, how far did elephants range historically in in Asia, and then maybe give us a sense of scale of what we're talking about now in 2020.
0: Sure. Well, well, so if you go back to, I I think as recently, maybe as the uh, third or fourth century AD, uh, there were Asian elephants as far West as the Middle East, um, like uh, the, uh, in Iran and maybe even parts of Iraq, Um, possibly even up to the shore of the black sea, but that might even be pushed. That might be pushing things a little too far. Um, And then uh, sort of following a kind of corridor of sort of ecological possibility for the species across Iran into India, where there's a tremendously kind of wider berth of habitable area for them, all over Southeast Asia, both mainland and maritime Southeast Asia, more or less stopping their range. Um, Sumatra, Java, Borneo, I don't think they naturally got to other islands besides those. Uh, and then upwards into China, pretty significantly far into China, not quite as far north as like Beijing, but surprisingly far north, um, given the kind of you get some pretty uh, pretty pronounced winters um, in the parts of China that were formerly occupied by the ranges of elephants. So that that's going back a little bit less than 2,000 years. And then by the time you get to the current era, um, basically a, t- a total with retreat of elephants out of almost all of China, except for a couple of very tiny pockets along the uh, borders with Laos and uh, and uh-huh. Burma, um, basically a, a total withdrawal from the Middle East, and as well as Iran and even Pakistan. In India, some pockets in uh, the south and in the north, in the northeast in particular, to some extent in the kind of central and east central parts of the country. Sri Lanka has some ranges, and then there are these pockets of ranges all over uh, Southeast Asia, of course. And really, those pockets get biggest and become the most interconnected with each other at this kind of uh, area along the Indo-Burmese borderland, especially the kind of northern side of that border- borderland where Kachin State is uh, touching Arunachal Pradesh in India. And so sort of from the point of view of the elephant, this is like the crucial strategic area that they that they need to continue to exist as having forest cover if the species is going to have a future because it's a species which uh, has become uh, really dependent upon the existence of forest cover, which historically, yeah. if you go back thousands of years, that wasn't the case with Asian elephants. They were actually were uh, dwellers of uh, river valleys, and they were they would actually eat grass and not and not um, uh, tree vines and bamboo leaves. But because they were forced out of the river environments by human beings who started dominating those river valleys, um, they actually had to kind of re-evolve and become uh, uh, upland and rainforest dwelling animals. And so they really need these last lingering upland rainforests to uh, persist, if they're going to persist as a species that actually gets to exist.
1: And it's in these tiny enclaves in the the monsoon forest where the working elephants are so um, indispensable, right?
0: Mm. Yeah, so, so they, they need the forest to persist. And I, what I argue in, 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 the, in my book, Giants of the Monsoon Forest, which came out last year um, is that there's a strong degree to which In theory, there's I think from like a maybe especially a Western conservationist point of view, there's this tendency to suppose that the uh, the best way to conserve them would be to have them all be wild and there'd be some like massive wildlife preserve like it would have to be the size of like you know the whole state of California or something and then all of the Asian elephants could live there and it would be fine. Um, But it seems to me that uh, the, the the more kind of realistic and like feasible scenario. Uh, that we actually have the the sort of uh, co-species social configurations in place for, is one where Asian elephants are interacting uh, with certain forest-oriented human communities that are making use of elephant-based labor to kind of get at the resources of the forest. So these human communities could be using elephants for logging, but that's sort of not 100% ideal because obviously logging is naturally destructive of forest cover, so that's not ideal from a conservation standpoint. And then the thing that really caught my eye uh, while I was doing this research was human communities that are making use of elephants to do transportation labor, in particular across flooded river courses, along flooded roads, um, and and this kind of thing, which becomes incredibly pronounced during the monsoon season uh, in the uh, Indo-Burmese borderlands. So uh, these are sort of my thoughts about you know what would be the the, the right sort of balance of strategies for. Uh, conserving the species and possibly conserving uh, the forest in that region, uh, more broadly speaking.
2: Um, you know, another uh, interesting thing um, at the outset of your book on giants of the monsoon forest um, was, you know, that essentially these are captive populations or captive captive members of the population. And um, so they're not truly domesticated. Um, but kind of a whole culture of capturing and methodologies have developed on you know, uh, you know capturing wild elephants essentially, and I, I don't know if taming would be the right word, but um, or semi-domesticating them um, in a way. Um, but could you go over the process by which, say, a mahout uh, Captures the yeah. um, captures elephants. It's quite sure, a yeah. harrowing.
1: Are they bred in captivity or you know. the red? What well, yeah? What is that like?
2: Yeah.
0: Um. Yeah, a, yeah. These are really really crucial themes. Um. Yeah. And and I, throughout the book, I think I tend to use terms like domesticated, domestic, captive, trained, and work almost like interchangeably. Um. Which is not exactly precise. But the problem is that from the point of view of Western languages, there isn't a precise term for the kind of human-friendly animal that Asian elephants are Um, because uh, there's probably some point during the the, the ancient history of the domestication of dogs when dogs were becoming very human-friendly, but we weren't yet selectively breeding them. They were kind of controlling the selection process themselves, but then that went away and humans imposed control over the selection of dog breeds, which hasn't happened with Asian elephants. So whatever was going on with dogs like you know, 25,000 years ago, that's kind of like what the situation is with Asian elephants now, which makes mm. it all the more remarkable that they can do these extraordinarily complex tasks. It's, I think, a, test, it's a testament to the, the flexibility of elephants' um, intelligence and sort of problem-solving abilities and capacity to sort of perceive the kind of broader abstractions of the situation for what they are. Um, yeah, so I, I've, I've been critiqued by a couple of anthropologists for the kind of the, the imprecise way that I use the word domesticated, which I don't mean that the elephants have been selectively bred by human beings. Uh, I rather mean domesticated in the kind of more literal, kind of Latin-based sense of domus-friendly, uh, friendly to the household, friendly to the human human habitat. Uh, that, that's what's happened with the with the trained segment okay. of the Asian elephant population. Um, and yes, yeah, so, so, but, but to get to the, 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 the core of the question, which has to do with uh, the capturing process, and keeping in mind that a great many of the work elephants that interested me um, had actually been born in captivity and were raised, uh, were, were raised within these human communities, still having these like, nightly periods of access to the forest where they can freely roam the forest, but they've never really been members of wild herds at any point in their lives but some of them um, are not born in captivity and in fact they're captured out of wild herds and there are multiple methods for the um the capture out of the the wild herd. so one of which is a kind of lasso method which is sort of um actually like incredibly kind of exciting to hear it described by someone who's ever done it where a team of elephant catchers called fundi uh, or pandu it's a similar sounding term in burmese um will uh, go on certain trained elephants who are trained to do this kind of work called kunky elephants.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, and please tell me they're riding elephants, not like, walking around trying.
0: Get... Oh, yeah, no, yeah they're, 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 they're riding elephants to go. Yeah, exactly. Because if they were just going, well, I don't know. I think to some, I think to some people it would be surprising to hear that they ha- there have to be elephants that are trained to specialize in assisting the humans and capturing other elephants. But, but that is the setup. And so right. they go with a lasso, which is sort of – it's not like a Wild West cowboy lasso. It's more of a heavier rope that you have to uh, uh, throw with both hands at the same time. And so your your legs are sort of strapped in on the elephant's neck. It's a very different kind of setup than what we associate with wow. cowboys and, and, and that kind of lasso work. Um, so that's one method. Um, and uh, another method is like a pit is dug and an elephant is chased into the pit. But that's considered – Um, That's considered really primitive and unsophisticated, and it could injure the elephant, and so then what what good is the elephant if the elephant is injured? And so most uh, mahouts or fundis, who are the mahouts who specialize in capturing wild elephants, uh, will really look their nose down at the pit method, and they'll say that they prefer the lasso method. And then the most sophisticated method of all, which is rarely practiced anymore, is the stockade method. And the stockade method is at a vast Stockade system is erected in the middle of the forest, sometimes many kilometers long, and the um, it's sort of shaped like an hourglass with an open end—and a whole herd of elephants uh. will be chased by many hundreds of humans working together, making noises and carrying torches. They'll sort of chase a whole herd of elephants into this stockade system, uh, where the herd becomes trapped. And then, uh, uh, so this is like uh, in more historical times. This is like how the kings of Burma and Siam and other such places would capture large numbers of elephants. Um, And there's a sort of trade-off if you think about these methods. Uh, So with the lasso method, you don't need as many people involved. You don't need to have this vast stockade system in the middle of the forest, which can be rather destructive. Um, But on the other hand, you tend to only be able to capture one elephant at a time, which is usually a calf. And so what you're basically doing is you're uh, depriving this poor calf from his or her family. Um, so it's a hugely tra- uh, traumatic event in the elephant calf's life, and then the elephant calf has to kind of, like, learn that, okay, now the human beings are my family, or, like, the, the other captive elephant in this human being's community are my family. So it, it's sort of uh, uh, seriously a troubling thing at that level, whereas in the stockade method, you know, entire families or entire, entire herds are captured at the same time, and so they all get to sort of maintain their pre-existing inter-elephant bonds uh, with each other within that method. Um, the training itself uh, can be um, pretty unpleasant to hear about. Um, it does depend on the area that the elephant training is happening. Um, in the more kind of government managed areas in central Burma, uh, there tends to be kind of a mix of positive reinforcement and negative yeah. So, reinforcement. is there is there
1: elephant whispering instead of just uh, you know violence as a form of uh, of training?
0: Right. So, so, so in the in the government. Managed areas. It tends to be, they don't use the term elephant whispering, but yeah, there actually tends to be a lot of song <laughs> involved. There tends to be lots of sweet treats that are offered as reward for the preferred behavior. Um, the, the, elephant is, be the elephant is tied to a tree to limit mobility, but um, not in a way that like is, is designed to produce physical discomfort. And it tends to be more of like a positive a lot of positive reinforcement and very little negative reinforcement. And then by contrast, in the more kind of northern tribal areas, like in Kachin State and Arunachal Pradesh, there tends to be significantly more negative reinforcement. Uh, the caught elephant might be taught tied up in a kind of uncomfortable way for several months in a row. And though there are going to be treats and lullabies and things like that, there's probably going to be more um, – Uh, more kind of like thwacking from the blunt end of a machete. I saw evidence of this on grown-up elephants and things like that. Um, Things that I think uh, a lot of uh, listeners who uh, would be preoccupied for the elephant's welfare, which, you know, why wouldn't they be, um, would find seriously troubling. Um, But what I would want to add to that is that if I leave things there, it makes it sound like, okay, the government areas have the correct set of practices and the the northern tribal areas have a bad set of practices – And maybe uh, for the phase of elephant training, that might be true. But in other ways, the northern tribal areas, I think, have a superior level of knowledge on the form of elephant-based work, which I think is way more sustainable, which is monsoon-time transportation using elephants because it doesn't destroy forest cover. Whereas in those um, southern-central Burmese uh, teak logging areas, uh, the the government-owned elephants are being used entirely to harvest teak and in fact now there's a moratorium on that because right. uh, the teak was overharvested so it's not for per- it, it, it's more sustainable than like industrial scale logging but it's still it is logging it, it's not the most sustainable thing from the conservation standpoint so i almost would want to advocate a kind of two way knowledge transfer where the training methods are transferred from the government areas into the tribal areas and the transportation knowledge is transferred from the tribal areas to the government the government areas i think that would be a that would be like a good exchange that I'd I'd hope to see happen
1: one day. And and that sort of leads me into something I was thinking about and something you, your, your work talks about, and I think our listeners are probably asking themselves. So why, why would people continue to use elephants in, in, in 2020? Um, You know, I mean, I I know, but I think like a lot of people would think like, well, you know, we have, we have engines. Um, Why are we still using, why are we still using elephants? And so, um, and your work speaks directly to that. So kind of, Give us a sense of like what what we're talking about here and why they're so special.
0: Right. Well, so so, so in, in the, this particular region of the world, you have to imagine a, a degree of rainfall during monsoon season, which is like late July through uh, late October, more or less. A degree of rainfall, which is so severe that almost any road network that exist in the landscape is going to pretty significantly flood to the point that most wheeled vehicles won't be able to use that road network at that time of year, unless you you built every single road to be like a concrete viaduct where it's elevated 20 feet up above the landscape, which actually increasingly, um, not on the Burmese side of the border, which doesn't have the uh, development capital yet, but on the Indian side of the border and Arunachal Pradesh, you, there is being more construction of these like vast viaduct systems, which is sort of extraordinary because the viaducts are they're there to like connect villages that might only have 2000 people each. Um, but at any rate, that's not going to be able to be feasible for every single road in this entire region, which is like a, you know, it's a big chunk of territory. I don't think every road can be turned into like a futuristic concrete viaduct. Um, so when the flooding happens, uh, the question is how do you get across the landscape? Um, Now, some of the roads, you know, are sort of piecemeal kind of usable, but the thing is the elephants are basically mobile across the landscape at all points in the landscape during the flood season. They can swim across rivers. They can wade across awkward river shallows. When there's obstacles in the way, um, they can use their massively powerful uh, trunks to move the obstacles out of the way, both for themselves and also for, say, pedestrians or motorcyclists or other cars that are trying to get uh, uh, you know, uh, persist along some flooded road. So the the elephants have this kind of unique mobility and use value in this kind of uh, intense monsoon region um, that really hasn't been replaced by any kind of uh, big, heavy, diesel-powered, um, you know, human-invented uh, vehicle. Like, it, it's sort of surprising and counterintuitive, but um, – in another sense, maybe it shouldn't be that counterintuitive. Most of the big kind of modern vehicles that we think about, whether they're automobiles or Jeeps or or uh, tanks or, you know, uh, backhoes or, or this kind of thing, most of those vehicles were invented uh, by societies that have much more kind of temperate environments and I think are basically designed for those environments and are not really designed for a kind of a, a part of the world with these intense monsoon flooding and sort of omnipresent mud and mudslides and landslides and the kinds of things that, um, you would be relatively accustomed to living in Northern Burma, um, in particular kitchen state or in Arunachal in particular, the kind of Eastern part of Arunachal, uh,
2: yeah, because, whereas, you know,
0: the, the Asian elephants are basically they're evolved to be mobile across those landscapes. So that's one reason yeah. that I would expect, uh, the elephants to kind of endure in terms of their usefulness for, um, at least a few more generations. I don't think that the culture is going to collapse overnight.
1: So, like, yeah, I mean, it's interesting that, you know, you think a boat can get you on some of that monsoon, but, like, it's the, you know, but when it gets out of the – an elephant can swim across um, water and then can get up on the muddy bank and – uh go on a non existent road and take you over over land is where like you would need several. you would need the boat to maybe get you and you like the 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 kind of trying to trying to piece out in rural monsoon um you know upper myanmar like how to how to have the logistics worked out like an elephant might be right well you to need move.
0: to imagine that um it, it's a funny thing like like uh, I'll describe the intensity of the flooding, and I think most uh western listeners. Or readers, for that matter, they'll 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 hear this and they'll think, oh well, that means the whole landscape turns into a lake. And if the whole landscape turns into a lake, why wouldn't you use a boat? But what instead you need to imagine is that the intense flooding does not mean that the whole landscape turns into a lake. The intense flooding means that the whole landscape turns into a morass of mud, and it's it's the <laughs> yeah. image of the morass of mud uh, which needs to be kind of uh, remembered. If if you live in like Florida, it might be kind of easier to imagine. Uh, what you're supposed to think about here—it's a landscape that boats would also have a lot of trouble traversing, because there's mud in the way, there's boulders uh, that are constantly being rearranged uh, because of the rainfall. Um, uh, the current gets extremely swift and dangerous uh, during the flooding times of year along the water courses. So it's not that 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 the uh, that boat geographies would be rendered completely irrelevant during this time of the year. Far from it, but they don't they don't solve the problem. Um, and elephants don't solve the problem, but elephants can can fill in significant pieces of the problems in the ways that wheeled vehicles and boats really can't and and you really in order to imagine elephants becoming totally obsolete from a kind of technological point of view in this environment, you really have to imagine a kind of futuristic scenario where everyone has like a personal flying craft or something like yeah. that then then I'll concede that nobody needs a transportation elephant anymore. <laughs>
2: You know um, that that leads me to think also in your uh, in your book that um, you describe really kind of the elephants in in the situations like this when they're ferrying people actually show judgment about the situation. Um, if I remember right, that um, they they knew what to do sort of at the spur of the moment. But, you mm-hmm. know, in, in in an emergency situation, oh. I think that, uh, you know, they would block the flow of the water so that people could um, get on board or what have you. They, they seem to have a sense of.
0: Yeah, no, that, that, that in particular, that vignette is uh, it, that, that's a, that's a vignette from a, a World War Two era narrative about uh, British and Burmese and Indian refugees fleeing from Burma from, uh, during the Japanese invasion of Burma in 1942. And, yeah, a lot of these escapes had to happen on elephant back because that was the only way across the mountains in between uh, Upper Burma and Assam, which are the Patkai Mountains. And there's, there's an extraordinary moment in one of these narratives where a particular elephant, I think it was Maggie the Elephant, I think that's the one that the narrative is about, uses her bulk as a kind of a breakwater to allow these two particular refugees who have been stranded as they're sort of wading across a particular flooding jungle course uh, to, to, to make sure that they're not overwhelmed by the rapids that are that are sort of um, causing them to lose their footing. And if they lose their footing, then they get swept away by the rapids and they drown. So Maggie comes up next to them and blocks the water. It's an extraordinary description uh, from this particular narrative. And then this allows them to kind of make their way across the rest of the... Uh, uh, across the rest of the the river, so that's a very historical uh, description of the phenomenon. But and yeah, and more pre- uh, sort of contemporary times too. Um, just from my interviews, I did hear a number of really impressive uh, stories about um, elephants being sent into rivers to rescue stranded people, like stranded river fisher- fishermen or stranded farmers during a flood. Uh, elephants coming, uh, realizing kind of on the fly, like oh my god, that particular a log over there in the river is about to move in a way that's going to cause a wave to happen and then we will sort of prevent the log from moving. Um, Just really sort of rather extraordinary accounts of the elephants kind of being, kind of having a higher level of situational awareness and these kind of flood time rescue situations than uh, many of the humans would have, though certainly the elephants mahouts or uzis as they're called in Burmese um, also need to be kind of, uh, need to be sort of uh, connected into what's happening as well. Um, so yeah, uh, the the elephants level of situational awareness is definitely part of um part of what makes it possible, I think, for them to bounce back and forth between these kind of wild and domestic states in addition to being incredibly useful in these kind of high intensity, urgent emergency situations.
1: You, you alluded to it in uh, um, about this sort of World War two scenario that these elephants were moving. Um, uh, people, but, uh, a, a bit of your work is, is focused on a sort of the subversive guerrilla sort of mobility aspect of, of, of elephants. Um, tell us what you're finding.
0: Sure. Well, so, so, uh, in Kachin state, uh, and, and maybe some listeners will already be familiar with this. There's a, uh, a militia. Sometimes people don't like it when I use the word militia. Um, but I, I sort of perceive it as a militia, um, or a kind of a a local ethnic army called the Kachin Independence Army, Um, and they uh, have about 50 to 60 elephants uh, who are used kind of as transportation convoys across the Kachin Forest. Um, So most of the work that the uh, Kachin Independence Army, or KIA's elephants, are doing is they're carrying supplies to and from various uh, rebel army-held camps and villages and depots and caches that are uh, deep in the Kachin forest, and this just allows the organization to access these areas and create a kind of logistical web in ways that are totally beyond the view of um, the permanent road network, which tends to be more uh, dominated by the central Burmese military, the uh, the Tatmadaw. Uh, furthermore, because like the whole thing is happening under the cover of forest canopy, Um, Unlike a road system, where in order to have the road system, you have to tear down a whole corridor of trees, and then you can easily see from a satellite image that the road is there, Uh, these elephant trails are purely under the cover of the forest canopy. So there's a a very little way to track exactly where they are or where they're going. And so um, uh, this kind of uh, elephant-based transportation system, and it's the only thing like this that's left in the world, though there used to be examples of this kind of thing elsewhere, um, that the that the KIA administers uh, uh, sort of allows there to be this kind of relatively invisible or clandestine logistical uh, web, and 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 you need to have the elephants involved, or they need to have the elephants involved in order in order for that to be possible. Um, there are certain militias in uh, uh, Karen State as late as recently as the 1980s that had somewhat similar uh, uh, organizations, and then actually among the somewhat, from an American point of view, the somewhat more famous Ho Chi Minh Trail. During the Vietnam War, uh, the Viet Cong uh, actually had uh, rather similar elephant-based logistical networks along, uh, along the Ho Chi Minh Trail, where elephants were carrying munitions and food and supplies and equipment and medicine uh, to the front, never themselves participating in the fighting. So it's not like in the ancient, ancient times when elephants were doing combat, but rather doing these kinds of like rear guard logistical actions on behalf of a kind of, uh, you know, a, a resistance army, basically. Um, In several of these cases, uh, the other side began to perceive the elephants as such a a nuisance for their own kind of uh, strategic or tactical um, goals on the area that they actually started um, shooting elephants from the air. Uh, So this happened – well, during World War II, uh, the uh, several British Royal Air Force pilots uh, recall having been ordered by high command to shoot on elephants – uh, because any elephants you saw in the wrong era era had to be assumed to be aligned with Burmese mahouts who would align themselves with the Japanese. Um, and the pilots from the Royal Air Force, they didn't like doing this. They remember feeling that this was um, completely, you know, inhumane uh, in some way, uh, a bridge too far, and, and something they didn't want to do. Um, and then something very similar happened during the Vietnam War where American pilots, recall, having been uh, given very similar orders where if you see an elephant whose belly has mud on it, um, like you're in your helicopter, you look down, you see elephants, and if the elephant has – if the belly has mud on it, you have to assume that that mud is from the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and you should shoot the elephant on the spot. And very similar patterns, as the pilots remember, being in an uproar that they were given these uh, these particular uh, orders to fire on elephants. It was seen as being somehow – um, whereas apparently shooting on lots of human beings was not considered as much of a problem, bringing the elephants into it was somehow seen as, as uh, totally beyond the pale. So yeah, I, but that that so that, that stories like that give you a sense of multiple things, but one of them is certainly that uh, the elephants were perceived as being enough of a problem uh, that the other side ordered that they should be shot at.
1: But I guess un- unlike though, I guess our listeners shouldn't get the idea. Unlike say the you know in the king of siam and 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 Burma are are going to war with each other um, in the eighteenth century. this these are not war elephants these
0: are not battle
1: elephants. These are transport vehicles. Is that right?
0: That's right. yeah, I, I think the last combat elephant, I think that there's some maybe like in the very early nineteenth century, there may have still been a few combat elephants used um in certain uh, Southeast Asian wars between different uh, uh, states um there states or kingdoms there. But uh, these elephants, though, associated with, like, military kinds of activities um, are being used for kind of uh, behind-the-front logistical activities. And in some ways, the whole point of those kinds of elephants is, for, is to allow people involved with the fighting to avoid the fighting. Uh, so the elephants are facilitating this kind of evasive mobility away from the fighting. Um, so, like, I don't advocate uh, the use of elephants in a warlike setting. But the fact that the elephants are being used for this, like these evasive geographies, and are being kept situated in the forest, um, there's a degree to which elephants in that kind of situation might actually be better off than an elephant in a zoo, because an elephant that's like working, through, uh, working, doing transportation work in the Kachin forest for the KIA, or was doing uh, transportation work through the Viet Cong along the Ho Chi Minh Trail in the 1960s, for that matter, um, is not particularly close to the fighting and is in the forest and is crossing paths with herds of wild elephants and is being released into the forest on a nightly basis, which is always the constant practice with uh, mahouts, especially mahouts doing transportation work. Um, and so is, is is mating with wild elephants and um, might actually be in a better situation in terms of like overall species outcomes than an elephant in a zoo, which is very unlikely to live longer than 30 years and is very unlikely to reproduce at all um and so a, a lot of these sorts of um phenomena and sort of modern histories are they're not quite what they seem at first it seems inhumane but then the sort of the big picture of what's going on um might not be as simple as that uh, I, I i think that the kachin independence army probably has an awful lot to teach the world uh, including the world of elephant conservationists about elephants and about how to get elephants to actually um to actually mate with each other and reproduce when they're in a condition of um of kind of uh interaction or uh, cooperation with the human transportation network so yeah it's a very complicated issue though because i at the same time i don't want to go so far as to kind of romanticize this kind of uh militarization of elephants because i think that would be inappropriate as well
2: so you know in a way you can think of elephants as uh getting along with humans as a an adaptations, an adaptive strategy on the part of the elephant.
0: Yeah, that's certainly kind of my um, theory about what's what's happened with Asian elephants. It is really striking that um, among work animals, they do some of the highest intensity and most cognitively demanding tasks, and yet they were never selectively bred by humans to do so, uh, as I've said before, um, and I think uh, probably a large amount of what's going on is that they're selecting each other for human-friendly traits. And I think that the reasons for doing that over the last several millennia is the intensity of deforestation and habitat loss experienced by elephants, uh, by Asian elephants, has sort of clued them into the, to the fact that um, they're actually better off forming up a kind of partnership with certain human groups that are very forest-oriented in terms of their politics and their livelihood, um, such as a lot of Kachin people, for example. That elephants are kind of have a better shot at survival if they're kind of linked up with those groups especially if those groups are giving them access to the forest on a nightly basis where they can mate with each other and with wild elephants how many hours
1: a day um, how many hours a day are elephants out um, being wild elef- the, the the working elephants when they're released to go forage like what does that typical work day look
0: like for them yeah so usually uh, they're going to be they're going to be working for maybe 8 hours a day um, and it's even put this way by uh, a sort of somewhat famous British elephant official in Burma during the 1920s through uh, 40s, James Howard Williams, or Elephant Bill, who said that the elephants get to be wild 16 hours a day, which might be overstating things, but they're basically out in the forest wandering around with a pretty strong degree of freedom. They, they do have a chain around their forelegs, but the chain is very loose, and the chain is also breakable. Um, and so for 16 hours a day, they're just sort of eating, sleeping. Um, they might be finding uh, either other trained elephants or wild elephants and mating with them. And this is basically getting them some pretty positive biological outcomes um, as compared with other yeah. kinds of captive elephants.
1: So you're saying there's, a, there's an elephant bill, like there was a buffalo bill? <laughs> Did you say elephant bill?
0: <laughs> yeah, I think elephant bill I – think, I think the nickname elephant bill stuck – in reference to Buffalo Bill. I think Buffalo Bill came first and the <laughs> Elephant Bill came later.
1: <laughs> I like this idea, though. So, um, <laughs> go ahead, Jim. It,
2: um, you also brought up uh, in, earlier today uh, the concept of Zomia.
0: Sure, um, yeah.
2: Uh, if you could you speak to that a little bit? It's a kind of complex subject, but...
0: Yeah, well, it, it's, a, it's a concept that was developed by various... Um, social theorists and political anthropologists such as uh, James C. Scott uh, is probably the highest profile among them, but also Jean Michaud, and I think Willem van Schendel is maybe the one who first coined the term. Um, And and the the, the sort of the concept uh, with Zomia, especially as developed by James C. Scott in his book, The Art of Not Being Governed, which is from 2009, uh, is that much of the kind of Southeast Asian and maybe Northeast Indian uh, upland heavily forested kind of massive region um, has historically functioned as a kind of receptacle of various human groups or human cultures that were fleeing displacement from expanding, powerful uh, valley-based kingdoms. So in the valley-based kingdoms, you have these expanding agricultural states that could have been happening in Southeast Asia, like along the Irrawaddy or Chow, uh, phraya or Mekong, or from China and their river systems or from India and its river systems. Um, that you have these this sort of flight of various ways of human groups that they don't want to be absorbed into these expanding agricultural kingdoms, and so they flee into the hills, and they undergo a process of what Scott calls something like ethnogenesis, and they become a new kind of group that reinvents itself around life in the hills. And then Scott sort of tries to argue that they're they're reinventing themselves around a form of kind of like constant statelessness or constant anarchism and that this part of scott's argument has been very controversial um most groups that you talk to in the region uh, like the kachin for example if you say are do you seek statelessness the answer you'll get is no and, and but but that doesn't necessarily that in and of itself does not necessarily uh, negate scott's thesis um so i see it as a very useful framing because this idea of um fugitive mobilities or escape mobilities or evasive mobilities, I think is hugely important for understanding this kind of enduring use value of the Asian elephants because, um, the Asian elephants who are themselves kind of in this process of multi millennial flight from the human river valleys that they themselves used to occupy and they've had to become more like hill dwelling and forest dwelling animals. Um, and they themselves oftentimes come up in these narratives, um, humans fleeing political crises on elephant back into the forest, Uh, deposed Kings and generals and magistrates. uh, Some usurper comes along, the King has to flee. And there there's just constant narratives that go hundreds of years back into um, various Southeast Asian histories uh, where this pattern of the magistrate has to flee into the forest on elephant back comes up. And then it's not just a sort of historical trope either. It's a, it's a, it's a, a dynamic you find in uh, these World War II narratives. I already mentioned these refugees fleeing Burma on elephant back to, towards the uh, relative safety of British-held India. And then even more recently, um, there are examples like uh, a village in the uh, Kachin region called Hukong Valley, and a particular uh, all the inhabitants of a particular village there uh, called Onglot. In 2018, so just, uh, just two years ago, they all had to flee the village because of encroaching fighting between the Tatmadaw and the KIA. And again, it was the same pattern. They fled the uh, village on elephant back, which facilitated this um, ability to cross parts of the forest that just no other vehicle could possibly get to. Um, so uh, these are very kind of like Zomian mobilities, I think, in the way that Scott would present in his framing. Um, and uh, though on the other hand, I don't think that the, um, the kind of the ultimate kind of like anarchist uh, teleology that that Scott is subscribing to is is um, exactly uh, uh, useful for or necessary for the overall framing. But with that said, I do find uh, the Zomian framing really useful for understanding uh, elephant-based mobilities in places like Kitchen State.
1: Do the um, so one thing that an elephant can do that a say a um, a machine can't is to go where there's no road and in and, and heavily densely forested and, and you know uneven soil to sort of get there is and and there they participate in logging uh, elephants do is do we think that uh, forests that are that are harvested using elephants are more sustainable sustainable harvest than um, um you know chainsaw machine-based
2: yeah Yeah. right well
0: that's what i've i mean that's what i've heard from i've seen that in that's how like uh i mean it seems intuitive colonial officials up through world war ii certainly felt that way and then post-colonial logging officials in burma certainly felt that way um and so like i can report that that that's that has sort of been the uh, that's been kind of the working assumption within the contemporary forestry department. But with that said, uh, the uh, Burmese forestry has been becoming gradually mechanized. Uh, whether that means that it's becoming less sustainable, uh, I'm not sure. That sort of that approaches the limits of my analytical abilities because I'm not trained to go around like doing soil samples to kind of test that out in a systematic way. Um, Whether uh, roadless logging, so if you're using elephants to do logging, you don't have to build permanent roads. That's sort of the the uniquely valuable thing. Um, Versus road-based logging, where you are building permanent road networks for logging trucks to access the forest. If you do soil samples of those two kinds of situations, you find that the soil is healthier when there's no roads. Um, my guess is the answer would be yes, but we, we're at the limits of my, uh, you know, my methodologies. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have the ability to actually test that out. I think this is something I mentioned in the talk too, that that there is a sort of interesting gender component to the um, phenomenon of forest-based mahoutship or forest-based Uzi ship, if we want to use the Burmese term instead, um, where overwhelmingly the uh, the people doing the elephant work are men. It's a very male-associated. Uh, profession or, or form of work, and yet there are these interesting exceptions. Where Do you think it's because the work camps
1: themselves tend to be male, or or even at the village-based um, camps where elephants are working, the the, the mahout is probably a, a male.
0: Yeah. So so well. So, so, so uh, as I mentioned during the talk, uh, the. The logging area, the logging, elephant logging sort of splits into these two systems. There's a sort of camp system more associated with the tribal north and a sort of village system more associated with the government-dominated south. Um, and it is true that the the camps tend to be these heavily male environments because uh, the men at these camps will probably have women in their lives, like women in their family, but they'll be back in some town, which is very removed from camp life. Whereas in the kind of uh, the southern elephant logging village system, you have the men and the women and their children. Uh, They're all living in the same village. And then the elephants are also there too in the village. So everyone, like both, both sexes of both species are all there in the same village. And so there's a a somewhat greater likelihood of um, women happening, you know, just, just because of their own personal uh, interests or abilities, or maybe because of something going on uh, within a particular family where maybe uh, the son gets sick, and so the daughter has to sort of take up the mantle of handling uh, the elephant, which the family has been assigned. Something along those lines. Um, that that you will tend to see uh, female mahouts uh, somewhat more often in the uh, in the village system, with some interesting exceptions even there. Though I mean, it, it, even that kind of reading uh, somewhat oversimplifies it. I, I found uh, exceptions in the tribal northern area too. So again, even though it's a heavily kind of male-associated Profession, um, which is the, the the work of being a, like a like a forest mahout where you're doing logging yeah. and cross forest transportation work with your elephant. Um, there are these sort of interesting uh, exceptions uh, to that rule, uh, which I, I found is just useful to sort of keep in mind for for understanding. Did, the, did
1: those women the the rare instances did they come from mahout families?
0: Um, I'm thinking of uh, the cases I, I know about. I generally, no. Generally, they learned it from their husband who was a mahout okay. uh, in, in, in two particular interviews that, that I conducted at length. That was the case in both of those interviews. There was one interesting case of a woman who um, – uh, she actually – she so she was in central Burma. That's where I, I met her, but she had originally been in a northern Burmese town called Homolin, which is in Sagang Division, not far from the Kachin state border. It's a very isolated place, and I've never been there. Um And she said that at least when she was growing up there, so this would be like in the 1980s and 90s, because she was uh, rather elderly by the time I had my interview with her, um, that there were actually quite a lot of women mahouts in that particular town of Homolin, which she said had something to do with the fact that there's a river near Homolin called the Uyu River, which sort of drains from the uh, jade mines at Pakant. But by the time the Uyu River gets to Homolin, it's really a kind of gold, it's a gold dredging area. There's tons of gold along the riverbed, and there's a particular time of year when all the men from Ling, uh will tend to go to the river and dredge and pan for gold, which is not really elephant work. You don't need an elephant to do that work. So the elephants are left back at the outskirts of the town, and there's no men around to oversee the elephants. And so that becomes what the women are doing at that particular time of year. And so in this particular town, this is all from one interview, I hasten to add, and I've never been able to visit this town because of like it's just difficult to visit certain places in in Burma, as, as you might be able to imagine. Um, but there is a sort of an interesting kind of seasonal gender geography of how and when people are working with the local elephants, which sounds fascinating to me. And if somebody else has the ability to go to Homelin and Sagang division to check this out, that would be, that would be really valuable. I think.
2: To me, that kind of brings to mind, uh, sort of the social organization at the village or camp level. Um, of work around with these with elephants is there like a kind of like an organizational structure within the village so that you might have a head mahout or um, and it, or do they meet in groups or is it kind of democratic or you know how is work assigned or I imagine it kind of varies according to different kinds of tasks but
0: um would you there's definitely a uh, you know that, that's a that's a great question I have to admit that's not something that I was asking questions about in a systematic fashion. So I'm just sort of thinking back to things that I just noticed that, yeah, there always was kind of like a, a amongst the human mahouts, that there was a bit of like a, there was clearly a kind of like a hierarchy of authority that the kind of, the more experienced ones probably had a little bit more authority over the less experienced ones. But then what would kind of complicate things is that in some areas, the mahouts themselves are the owners of the elephants they're riding. And in other areas, they're not the owners at all. it's It's either some distant owner, like it's the the Burmese forestry department is technically the owner. or uh, in the case of certain towns, uh, the kind of the local political big man in the town, um this is I'm thinking in particular a particular town near Ru Pradesh in India, um is really the owner of the elephant, and he himself doesn't typically ride the elephant at all. He's not a mahout, and that work goes to someone completely different. Who, who, in the case I'm thinking of, uh, was an Adivasi man, whereas the sort of dominant person in the town was an uh, uh, was an Adi man. These are completely different kind of like ethno-linguistic groups, um, and so that also complicates uh, the degree to which there's like this hierarchy of authority amongst the Mahouts in a particular area. And in that particular town, it was it was rather it was rather weird actually. I almost felt like the sort of uh, social system that the Mahouts had amongst each other was almost like this this inverse, like, they they sort of, I think, perceive themselves to be at the bottom or on the the margins of village life and, like, perhaps not respected. Um, And and so there was a kind of a... I don't know. there, There was something... There was something that felt different about the dynamic in the particular town that I'm thinking of as compared with a great many of the camps and villages and towns that were heavily oriented around work uh, elephants and around mahouts uh, in Burma and other parts of Arunachal, for that matter, that I visited. So, again, it's, I, the, it does depend a lot on the individual place, um, so you do get kind of weird, weird places like the particular village I'm thinking about.
1: So, um, Jacob, uh, elephant in the room. I, you know, I'm pretty proud of myself for a whole, for not, for not, I mean, you know, for holding I, back on that yeah, one. I mean, it's, it's a tall you order back all this time. Yeah. I'll yeah. this, all this time. Um, but like, uh, but th- seriously though, um, what, what do you see the, the future of the, um, the monsoon elephant, uh, the Asian elephant, um, conservation. I'm particularly kind of interested in, in, the role and the attitudes of the mahout and elephant keepers in their towards towards sustainability towards poaching towards wild elephants like how, what do you um, how, what does that look like on in the social social network
0: um, well I think that if things go along just like the trends just follow business as usual that Asian elephants will probably be extinct by the end of the century so um, like some, something about the way in which things are done, there's only 40,000 left, which I mentioned in the talk, but occurred to me I hadn't mentioned, um, uh, in, in this, uh, in this podcast, um, which it, it is worth noting that I think sometimes Americans in particular, maybe Western Europeans too, when they think about endangered elephants, um, they think they're probably thinking about ivory poaching in Africa. They're probably imagining an an African elephant and and that's an important issue, but there's about half a million African elephants left and there's only 40,000 Asian elephants. And actually for Asian elephants, ivory poaching is not really the big issue. The big issue is deforestation and loss of habitat, um, which if you think about it sort of makes sense, there's just tremendously, uh, more population pressures from human beings, uh, in right. South and East Asia, right? The elephants are caught between the two most populous countries on the planet, which is India and China. Um, and so if this sort of bleak outcome that, that I think seems very likely is going to be avoided, the bleak outcome being their extinction by the end of the century, um, I think in some way looking at communities that are succeeding in getting humans and elephants to cohabitate the same space and are also succeeding in getting those elephants that are sort of cohabitants yeah. of the human landscape, getting those elephants to reproduce and to live relatively long, happy lives. So you're getting the ele- you're getting the element of spatial cohabitation and the element of reproduction. And if you have those things in place, um, then you have the two kind of foundations or sort of pillars you need to actually not just preserve but possibly re-expand the species so they don't go extinct. Um, And I think that the communities that are doing that are basically these forest-based human communities that are using elephants for some logging, though I don't think that that can't be the only thing happening because logging is destructive of forest cover. So somewhat more importantly than the logging, uh, the use of elephants for monsoon time and cross-forest transportation uh, is something that I would strongly advocate as something that um, not just elephant conservationists, but I think forest conservationists in general should be thinking about uh, as a way uh, to preserve these kinds of landscapes rather than just wipe them out and replace them with permanent urbanization and, uh, agriculturalization, which has been the historical pattern. Um, so yeah, I don't think the situation is hopeless and I don't, I think it's possible that something like what I'm describing might happen with or without my book, but this is the kind of thing that I do advocate, uh, towards the end of the book where, where it takes a kind of a somewhat more advocacy oriented turn, um, whereas the earlier portions of the book have a more kind of academic and analytical slant. Um, yeah, so, so so, the use of elephants as a means of flood season transportation, uh, I think could be, especially kind of rural or sort of quasi-urban environments, yeah. I think could be very promising for uh, what to do with the elephants. In and in a, in a, what I imagine is going to be an increasingly crowded human future. So, you know, what do you do with uh, a giant in an increasingly crowded world? That's kind of the fundamental question.
1: Yeah, well, uh this has been food for thought and and really fascinating talking to us Jacob. Uh thanks so much. What what should we be uh uh people should go out and get uh giants of the monsoon forests living and working elephants. What other what other stuff are you working on or that uh, you published want people to know about, Jacob?
0: Well, uh let's see. I guess I might want to put in a plug for um I have, like, a a, a visual uh, website where there are lots of elephant photos, so I think maybe oh, some nice. listeners yeah. uh, might be interested to go check that. There. There's also lots of other things I work on on that site, like my maps are there and things like this. My hand-drawn maps are there. I, I sort of have a, I, I, I have a kind of old-fashioned sort of technical uh, sensibility. I like uh, elephants as a means of transportation. Just, I can't even
1: see <laughs> yeah. Jim, and I can hear him perking up.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I, I, I saw some of
2: your maps when I was uh, – yeah, so this, these are kind of maps I I like to see. You know, the, um, I, so, I I trained so in traditional cartography myself. Oh yeah,
0: so, yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. so yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. Th- there's something to be said for uh, being able to actually draw uh, a map by hand, and that that I, I think there's certain situations where it's actually more appropriate than going to something like Adobe Illustrator or ArcMap. Though, uh, the latter two are things that that I do as well sometimes. Uh, anyway, so so listeners are interested in the kind of visual element of things. Um, can go to jacobshell.carbonmade.com, so that's J-A-C-O-B-S-H-E-L-L dot uh, C-A-R-B-O-N-M-A-D-E dot com, um, and they'll see a lot of my, my sort of visual projects there. Uh, the book itself, uh, which, again, has giants at the monsoon forest living and working with elephants, and it came out last year with W.W. W. Norton, uh, does have a lot of visual stuff in it. I think there's about 36 pictures and photos of, of elephants. Um, it's all black and white, so you can get sort of more colorful stuff at the at the website. So I think some listeners might uh, might find that worth checking out.
2: And we do have your book at our library too. Both of them, actually. Yeah. Great. So what what's in the future? I mean, uh, in terms of well, research.
0: Um, w- research that was supposed to happen this summer but had to be delayed because <laughs> of the coronavirus yeah, um, yeah. was in northwest Germany on the Wadden Sea. Uh, there's one particular island called Neuwerk Island, which the the main mode of access to the island are these sort of trains of wading horses. These horses wade across this vast <laughs> tidal mudflat area um, in order to get to the to the island, which is a sort of Man. like it's a it's a historically significant lighthouse island. So I wanted to go do a kind of more detailed research uh, about not just the island and the horses, but about the Vaden Sea in general, which sort of translates to the waiting sea, although that's not exactly right, Uh, but but that's that's the way to think about it. Um, Mm -hmm. And one reason I wanted to do that, which you might be sort of guessing, is that uh, I think there's a really interesting parallel there or analogy there with the use of elephants as a means of monsoon time transportation in areas like a Chin State. And the whole thing I sort of came up with because a particular colleague of mine Oh, uh, and I think she heard me give a talk about elephants, and she said, well, that was an interesting talk, but it sort of seems like the reason these people are continuing to use elephants is just because they're poor. Um, and the moment they're not poor anymore, and you shouldn't want them to be poor anymore, they're going uh-huh. to graduate from elephants to, like, you know, modern vehicles. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I disagreed on the spot, but I was also thinking I really need to show – wealthier countries doing things that are kind of analogous so this particular case in germany really caught my eye and unfortunately i've just been delayed in doing the research so it'll have to wait possibly till next summer um or whenever the germans let americans back into their country
1: (laughs) (laughs) um hey well uh jacob jim thank you both for joining us and uh Yeah. yeah um listeners were uh yeah you can we'll put those links in the in the description and uh look for us on uh on, for more great episodes thanks jacob
0: i think it was a great great thank chat you, jacob yeah
2: yourselves thanks very much yeah. Yeah.
0: thank you for joining us on this episode of southeast asia crossroads we would like to give thanks to Tantracoon for the use of his track
1: electric can and a thanks to our audio producer amelia mccoy Thank you for joining us, and we hope you tune in next time.